Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 103 with me, your host, Jonathan Puddle. Thank you for tuning in today. I am honored to introduce a new topic. We covered trauma and Jesus in the last little bit, and my friend Chris joined me for the first B-side, which was on the podcast last week. Well, happy to go in a new direction. My guest, actually, I have two guests, Sheila Ray Gregoire and Rebecca Lindenbach Gregoire. Sheila was on the show a couple of years ago, and they have joined me today to talk all about their brand new book, The Great Sex Rescue. And we cover a whole bunch of stuff today. I need to warn you that there are some trigger concerns. We talk about sexual assault in the context of marriage. There is a lot in here that you may not want your children to hear. But there is a lot of hope in here. There is a lot of really good news. If you grew up in evangelicalism and read any of the popular Christian marriage books, and if you had any kind of difficulties in your sex life, whether he did or she did, whether you had pain, whether you couldn't orgasm, whatever your situation is, they have addressed it and there is hope for you. So I commend this to you, but perhaps not in a public space. You'll find links in the show notes to order the book and to learn more about Sheila and Rebecca's work. Let's get into the show. Sheila, when you were on the show last time, that was actually April 2019. If your wow. brain goes back pre-COVID, that, that almost two years. Um, so thrilled to have you back on the show as well. Welcome, Rebecca, uh, Sheila's daughter and wonderful person in her own right. So thrilled to have you both here today. Thank you. We're excited too. Thank you. You've you have been very busy. I obviously the podcast, the writing, all the things that you do ongoing, but this new book and the time you put into surveying, what is it? 20,000 women. Mm -hmm. Yep. Biggest survey ever been done of, of Christian women's sexual and marital satisfaction. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest surveys of any topic. Well, it depends. It depends on what kind of survey you're looking at. There's a lot of surveys of like five questions that they do like on, you know, maybe like your Huffington Post kind of websites that'll get like 120,000 respondents. Um, but when it comes to a 30 minute long survey that is intensely personal and asking questions like how often do you become aroused during intercourse and uh, asking questions right. about, you know, your your history with pornography, your husband's history with pornography and like your childhood experiences. And it, it was really intense. So to see a survey that long, that personal, that invasive get answered by 20,000 Christian women is kind of mind-blowing. We had, I think, over 22,000 respondents total. I think 20,000 of them were identifying as Christian. Um, and that mm -hmm. was, we seriously have not seen anything like that before um, in the research that we were looking at this. We couldn't find anything bigger. Yeah. Well, no doubt. I mean, because even even Barna and trusted research organizations are looking at a thousand people to mm -hmm. for as representative samples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you see, we knew that what we were going to say was going to be controversial. And so we're like, you know what? We're just going to blast them. <laughs> we're going to have so many respondents that they can't come at us. But also we were we wanted to look at some problems that don't affect a lot of people, but that are very serious. And so we needed a large enough sample size that we could slice and dice the data in different ways. And so we were able to do that. Yeah, that's sensible, right? Because you get down to the point where you're like, okay, 
if you're slicing and dicing, you're, you're cross-referencing. Okay, we actually only have five people now who are reporting. Yeah. <laughs> is five people just because there is five weird people? Or is it because this is actually indicative? That's a really good point. Yeah, wow. Huh. So all of this research, for those not yet familiar, has been, you guys have boiled it down and parsed it and uh, built an amazing narrative piece around it. Uh, and, and the book is called The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. Uh, I, I read through a whole bunch of it yesterday and have been following along as you've been putting bits and pieces out over the last, I guess, two years, year and a half. And it's, it's remarkable work. It's remarkable work. So let me just say bravo before we go any further. Well, thank you. It took a lot out of us. It was mm -hmm. it was depressing, but I think in the end, it's very hopeful what we came up with. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, hmm, I, I was depressed and excited and enraged. <laughs> I cried and I laughed out loud. I had a very, I had a full range of emotions. I felt betrayal, shock, surprise, horror. I, I, it did put me in a bit of a funk. Mm -hmm. Again, I was only kind of skimming for the purposes of this interview. I intend to get the, the print copy and actually sit down because I was like, oh, hot damn, I need to highlight this. Or like <laughs> About every third or fourth paragraph, there's just sort of another bomb quote. And I was like, oh, man, you're describing my a lot. You're describing mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. Things that need to be said, things that I'm not proud that I can identify with. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot in here. And I, I think, as you know, kind of coming on the tail of the, the full exposure or what we have today of the full exposure of the Ravi Zacharias situation, and obviously kind of an unending sequence of church scandals. And I know, Sheila, you've been writing to this, that the deeper issues in evangelical identity, male identity, female identity, what sex actually is in, in the evangelical world. Uh, it's, it run, there are issues here that run deep and that have huge far-reaching consequences. Yeah, and that's really what we wanted to look at because our big research questions going into this is, are there certain things that we are believing in the evangelical church that are wrecking sex. Because, I mean, as you know, and as we talked about in 2019, I've been blogging about sex for years. You know, I talk about sex every day on the blog. I have a podcast about sex. We're just a weird family. We're weird people. We <laughs> talk about sex a lot. And I keep putting out all this content that is good. Okay, so I'm telling you, hey, you want to boost your libido? Here's how you do that. You want to have an orgasm? Here's how you do that. Like, I've got all this great content. But no matter how much content we put out, people were still coming back to us with the same problems. <laughs> so it's, we, we, and so we just sat together one day and we said, what if the problem is not a lack of good content as much as it is that there is a rotten foundation? And so we decided that in this survey, what we were going to do was test all kinds of different evangelical teachings and see how those correspond with women's sexual and marital satisfaction. And when we say evangelical teachings, we're not talking about like, like Christian or from Jesus. We're talking about the evangelical cultural stuff that's out there that we don't actually think comes from God. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
A quick question before we get into the data, a couple more. How do you did you do any international segmenting? Do you know where the people are coming from internationally? Are they mostly the US, Canada? In general, our sample was mainly from the US, yes, because that's mainly where our readership was. And also in order to get um, the survey out, it wasn't just our list. It wasn't just our blog. You know, this was not just people hearing our message. We had other people sharing it um, on their websites, um, to their friends, to their churches. And so uh, more than half of our respondents actually came from extra sources other than ourselves. And so they were mainly from the US. We do know um, we had a lot from Canada as well. Um, we also had quite a few from the UK, from Europe. Uh, we had pretty international uh, spread. The majority of the people did come from the US though. And uh, we don't, we, I don't believe we looked at it based on where they were from. We just looked at it based on exposure to these teachings because yeah. um, that's what we were interested in. Yeah, we had 130 questions. There is so much more data we could get out there. So we would love to look sometime at, hey, do Aussies have more orgasms than Americans? We just haven't run that that data yet. So one day that will be in an article. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that is, it is of interest because even as I have been sharing some things and moving up to this interview, it's been interesting to watch the way that when I say the harm that purity culture has done, certain folks internationally don't get it in the same way that folks in North America do. If I say purity culture X, that means something to mm -hmm. people 20 to 45 or 50 years old in North America, increasingly. Obviously, there, is, there are some folks still waking up to that. But I've got a lot of friends in the same space outside of us saying, I don't really understand. I don't really understand what, mm -hmm. are you saying purity is a bad thing? I'm like, okay, so there's a whole thing here. So that's why I asked the question about inter international. Anything else you want to say just off the top about why you did this? Anything else before we get into yeah. some pointed questions? Well, and I'm pretty sure I shared this on that podcast with you that April 2019. I'm pretty sure we talked about love and respect. <laughs> um, but in January of 2019, I read Love and Respect. And it was the first time I had ever done so. I hadn't read a lot of sex and marriage books, even though I write in this field because I was always afraid of plagiarism. Um, and when I read that book, it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I had no idea that it was that bad. And you can go listen to that podcast if you want to find out why, because I think we talked about it. Um, but what one of the big things we wanted to do in The Great Sex Rescue was identify which teachings were harmful, but then we also looked at the best-selling marriage books and sex books in evangelicalism to see which ones spread those teachings. And then we put them against a rubric. So a lot, a lot of, of the great sex rescue is talking about here's how this stuff got spread. Mm -hmm. And so you're not crazy. Like if you believe this stuff, it's not that you're stupid. It's not that, that, you know, you were duped or anything. It's just, yeah, it's in the water and it's not your fault, but here's how you can get over it. So good. So good. Okay. First question then. I wonder, are there some things that you were already intimating, some things that you were hearing bits and pieces that the research categorically bore out? Like things mm -hmm. that were not a surprise, things that were like, oh my gosh, this is perhaps even more widespread than we'd even given thought to. Yeah, one of the ones that we were really not surprised about at all, but we were really surprised as to how impactful it was, was the obligation sex message. So what that means is we measured whether people had heard and whether they believed um, 
the idea that women are obligated to give their husband sex when they want it, right? So a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And this teaching, we already knew from talking to women and from hearing the comments come in on the blog and from, you know, hearing people's struggles with like enjoying sex, that this was a huge roadblock for a lot of women. The feeling like I don't have a choice. I have to do this. This is my duty. What we didn't expect was that it would have comparable effects on rates of sexual pain as prior abuse. Wow. Yeah. Like that was a mind blowing result that we got was um, both of them, I believe are close to, uh, I don't know. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's somewhere in the 1.3 to 1.6 times more likely to experience vaginismus as a result of previous abuse or the obligation sex message. Um, it's, it's astoundingly large. And when we have a teaching in the church that impacts women in a similar way to actually experiencing their autonomy physically being taken away from them, we need to stop being surprised when we've told women, you don't have bodily autonomy, that it harms them. Right. Right. Like we tell women, you don't have a choice. You marry this man because you love him and he loves you. But now he, in essence, owns your body. You know, that's what we tell women. But you're supposed to enjoy this. But if you don't, it doesn't matter because he gets it anyway. Right. Like this is such a harmful teaching, but we didn't expect it to be that harmful. And the pushback, of course, that we get is, oh, but the Bible does say that. The Bible says that. First Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. Yeah, you know, he has to fulfill his marital duties to his wife and she has to fulfill hers to her husband and her body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to him and his body belongs to her and do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, you know, that you may devote yourself to prayer and fasting, et cetera, and that you may come together. So, okay. Yes, the Bible says that, <laughs> but what does the Bible mean by sex, <laughs> because this is what, this is the fundamental question. Like, what is it that we are not supposed to be deprived of? So Jonathan, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Yes. I do not expect you to actually answer, <laughs> but if I were to say to you, did you have sex last night? Chances are you are thinking of a very specific thing, <laughs> right? I would you actually like to answer this question. Okay. If you don't mind, I've never, ha- I, I've, ne- I've, at- I've never had a person volunteer, but you go right ahead. <laughs> because, because, because I was reading this yesterday and I read that chapter mm-hmm. and I was really intrigued and I was, I was trying to think about this and I was trying to figure this out in my own head and there's a lot of layers to it, uh, but, but, but I would, and, and just full disclosure for anybody listening, my wife gave me permission to discuss our sex life. Uh, <laughs> and so I have that permission. I would say, oh, I don't even know. My wife certainly had an orgasm last night and I, and I was involved, <laughs> but, I'm not, but I'm not totally sure if I would say that we had sex and I'm not totally sure that I'm proud of not being able to answer that. <laughs> we, had, we had time together. But clearly, like, yeah, this isn't so go on, go on, because this is really important. And I feel like I'm really sensitive and and engaged in this subject. And I'm realizing even my own language and my own thinking has room for improvement. Yeah. So my issue is that when we say, you know, did you have sex? What we mean by sex in general is did he put his penis into her vagina, move around till he climaxed? Right? That is sex. Yeah. And 
we would say that is a part of being sexual, but that is not sex. Cause that definition of sex, she could be lying there counting ceiling tiles, making a grocery list in her head, you know, or even worse, she could not want to do it at all. And yet that would still count as sex. And with that definition, does it even make sense? First Corinthians seven, if you read that definition into those verses, It doesn't because sex in the Bible is supposed to be something which is mutual. That's the whole point of that first Corinthians seven passage is that it is mutual (laughs) and it is pleasurable. And we know from Genesis chapter four, Adam knew his wife, Eve, like that's not just a euphemism. Sex is supposed to be a knowing it's supposed to be deeply intimate. And so when we're told not to deprive each other, It doesn't mean if he wants one-sided intercourse, you need to give it to him whenever he wants it. It means that in your marriage, you are supposed to have a sexual life, which is mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. And we're not supposed to deprive each other of that. Hmm. But if your sexual life is one-sided intercourse, she's already being deprived. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's also, I I don't think you really got into this, but but it struck me reading that definition in the book that it's also like incredibly ableist, right? Like yeah. that's not touching any scenario for folks who have various different kind of physical, emotional, mental challenges mm-hmm. with that area mm-hmm. of their, their bodies, their sexual life. Just another way that we have reduced something to something that works for white men. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also completely erases women who are currently experiencing severe sexual pain. Like if you're experiencing sexual pain to the point that you can't penetrate, that doesn't mean you don't have a sex life if you want one, right? Like while you work on treatment, you can still have a sex life that is mutual and pleasurable and life-giving that yes. just doesn't include penetration. And that can be a very valid and healthy choice for you as a couple for a while while she works on having healing and finding treatments and uh, getting to the point where she can enjoy sex, not grit her teeth and get through it. And that Becca just said something really important. She said the word vaginismus. Yes. I bet you a lot of our listeners don't even know that word. I didn't know it until reading your, your work over the last six months. Mm-hmm. And yet how many of us know erectile dysfunction? Hands up. You know, mm-hmm. we, we looked at the focus on the family website. We, we searched for vaginismus or postpartum pain. Mm-hmm. Nope. Erectile one, dysfunction. One, one article came up for postpartum pain. It wasn't even about postpartum pain. It merely mentioned postpartum pain as something that might happen after you have a kid. Yeah. But didn't say what to do about it. No. Nope. You know, um, desire and God gospel coalition, like they just, they don't talk about this stuff, but they talk about erectile dysfunction. Vaginismus is primary sexual pain where, um, the muscles of the vaginal wall contract and it's involuntary. Um, but she can't relax. And so penetration becomes really painful or difficult. And over 20% of women reported experiencing this in their life, 7% to the point that, you know, penetration is impossible. And then an additional 20% also experience major pain during childbirth. Well, not or after childbirth, after. like postpartum, postpartum sexual pain, you know, and yet we don't talk about this. Right. 
And, and it is, it is a real issue. And so that's one of the, that's one of the things we were looking at how we wanted to slice and dice the data. We wanted to get enough women who had had vaginismus so that we could figure out what's the underlying cause. Cause that was one of our outcome variables. And it's a personal one for me. Cause that was my story. Mm. And, uh, and that was one of the things that I learned doing the survey. I, I thought I was all good. I thought I was like totally healed. I thought, I am so healthy sexually, I'm all great. But in doing that survey and realizing what the underlying causes of vaginismus are, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah, for real. How widespread, not is vaginismus, but this this duty obligation sex, like, because again, reading through my own personal lens, I'm like, I don't even like that sex. Like, that's gross. Like, that's not, I don't, I'm not aroused during that kind of sex. I'm like, for me, it's like, can you please show some interest? And so I will put some effort in to, to that end. How widespread is the duty sex situation? I think so roughly 40% of women believe it before they're married um, or they're taught it. And then almost the same number, I think it's like 38% believe it. And then if you ask what about now, it's about half. Yes. So about half of women believe. So it, it so 40%, roughly almost 40% believed it when they married, but only slightly more than 20% believe it now. So it's it's dropped significantly. And since we wrote the book, we also did a survey of men. So this information isn't in the book. So this is like special for you, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> but but roughly 23% of men believe it now too. So almost the same number of women mm. believe it as men believe it. That is fascinating. That's figure 1.1, which I have here in front of me. And that was one of the really interesting questions to me because there's a couple of questions where, because you've you've got basically, I agreed with this before I got married. And then you've got, I was taught this by church, media, family before marriage. And then you've got, I agree with this currently, and I I'm taught this now. And that is one of the questions where it seemed to be more taught than believed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like surely that's got to be a red flag for us. When, when there's any topic that's like more prevalently taught than people have actually ingested it, I'm like, that's Surely we got the the other one was the only biblical reason for divorce is an affair, and it had a higher rate of teaching than belief. Mm -hmm. That to me, that's like a ooh, good. Yeah, that one was pretty ugly. And for a lot of these things too, they believed it almost to twice the rate before they were married than they believe it now. Yes, that is fascinating. No, I think, I think a couple of things are going on there, right? Cause you get married and you have this idea of, I'm going to be this kind of wife. This is what my marriage is going to look like. We're going to fit these cookie cutter molds that I've been taught in youth group and premarital counseling and all of these really, uh, in all of these uh, evangelical marriage books that I've been devouring because, you know, all I want to do is have sex, but I'm just going to read all these books instead. Um, as, as you're getting engaged and everything and you get married and then you find out that it doesn't work. A lot of it doesn't work. Maybe you find out in a good way that it doesn't work. Maybe you find out, you know what? I, my husband doesn't want to own my body. You know, maybe you find out, I actually married a man who really wants a mutual experience. And you just, you know, toss all that away. But also maybe you marry a man um, as a woman, because we're talking about this from a woman's perspective um, here. Maybe you do marry a man who really believes the obligation sex message, who really believes this idea that you're never allowed to leave no matter what. 
um, who really believes all these things and is lording over you. And what we heard from a lot of women was the reason they don't believe it now is because they believed it in their first marriage and it deconstructed. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, it's self-destructed because when you actually live out a lot of these teachings to their natural conclusion, you end up in a really unhealthy place. And the reason they've been allowed to flourish for so long is that they're wrapped in Christianese and then they're spoken all the time and they're taught. But a lot of times, even the people who teach them aren't even necessarily acting them out because healthy people in healthy relationships are saying all of the evangelically cultural appropriate things. But when you actually look at how their marriages act, they wouldn't force sex from their wife. Of course they wouldn't, but they're saying things that are enabling the kinds of men who would to do so. Wow. And I think that's part of how, part of why we see a bit of a difference is when you're married and you have experience with your spouse, you have enough experience to be able to say, well, that doesn't really apply. And maybe that's because of good things that you experience, but it also might be because of bad things you experienced. And you decided I'm no longer going to believe this because I know that this Mm -hmm. leads to death. Mm -hmm. So you could be in one of those good situations and praise God. And you may be listening to some of this and you're mm-hmm. like, well, I've read some of those books and, and we're fine, yep. but let's, but let's consider that 39% of 20,000 evangelical women believe they cannot say no when their husband mm-hmm. insists on sex, demands sex, physically forces mm-hmm. sex. We have a word for that. It's rape. Yep. And What's so scary when we looked through the evangelical books is how many of them had incidences of marital rape in there and they either dismissed them or they didn't call it rape. I mean, one of the worst ones was Tim LaHaye in the book, The Act of Marriage, which is the book that I read before I was married. It's the book that I read. Yeah, totally messed me up. I still think that's one of the reasons I had vaginismus. But uh, um, he has this story of Aunt Matilda and this niece is getting married and Aunt Matilda came to her and told her how terrible sex was. And Tim LaHaye portrays this as this awful Aunt Matilda did this to her niece. Like Aunt Matilda wrecked sex for her niece because she said how terrible it was. And so Aunt Matilda is painted as the enemy in this story. And he explains that on Aunt Matilda's wedding night, her husband held her down and raped her while she was kicking and screaming. And that this happened throughout their marriage. And how sad is it that Aunt Matilda never embraced sex and saw it as such a bad thing? And then he made reference to Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband. (laughs) And it's like, you know, calling a rapist equally unhappy as his rape victim is a little bit wrong. And yet we read the fourth edition of that book for our research and four editions, four editors, nobody ever thought maybe we should take that anecdote out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think that was one of the really shocking things for me was going back over books that we read that I had never noticed that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And and part of that is the, 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 the way that these messages have existed unchecked and unchallenged for so mm-hmm. long that, you know, now with with hopefully more transformed, more Christ-like minds, you know, we, we read some of these things and we're like, oh, sweet God, this is disgusting. Speaking of disgusting, can we talk Kevin Lehman and sheet music? <laughs> okay, 
But first, before you do that, because this this may sound like uh, well, let's just rag on all the books. I want yes. to tell you, I want to tell you the marriage books that I read. Okay. Okay. Lay it on me. Yep. My wife and I read The Act of Marriage. Yep. Okay. We read sheet music. Uh huh. We read Every Man's Marriage. We read Love and Respect. Mm-hmm. And of course, I went through all the Every Man's Battle stuff because that's what we did. Uh, and that that's like the that's kind of the honor roll, it turns out, mm-hmm. of terrible <laughs> messaging <laughs> bad books. Yeah, it's really all of the bestsellers. Like there are there are some bestsellers that actually did do really well. I do want to say, like we're talking about the negative ones. You can check out in our book, we do mention which ones did really well at the very end of the book. Um, but I think the problem is that our bestsellers are the ones that have these really bad messages in them. And so is it any surprise that these things are so widespread, right? Because everyone read them. They were just accepted as healthy because this was what Christians read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go ahead. Lay the disgusting on me. So Kevin Lehman tells women that when your husband is, is struggling with pornography, you need to be there for him because it, your period is a really difficult time for him. And so you should give him hand jobs during your period so that he doesn't get tempted. And then in another part of the book, he says, you know, if you're having your period when it's really heavy, um, so you can't have sex or you're going through a postpartum period, you know, phase, or you're just not feeling your best, then you can give him oral sex and a hand job when he's ready to climb the walls. And I have no problem with period sex. I have no problem if a woman wants to give her husband a gift. I have no problem with having fun. Absolutely not. But to tell a woman that your period, when you are cramping and bleeding out of your genitals, is a difficult time for him. is <laughs> <laughs> just so, or like your postpartum. We will take a very quick break for me to thank my patrons. Every month, and some of them annually, a bunch of folks support this podcast and support the work I'm doing. I couldn't do all of this without their support. So I just want to shout out to all of my patrons and say thank you so much for your support. Thank you to Connie, Louise, Darlene, C, Debbie, and Anna all of whom have come on in the last couple of weeks. I am trying to get up to 70 patrons right now, because if I can hit that target, then I'll have enough funds to offer transcribed audio of every podcast. And I want to be able to do that both for folks who need help with their English and for folks who are hearing impaired. So if you'd like to make that happen, head to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Become a patron today for as little as $3 a month. You'll be supporting the show and helping me get these messages of love and hope and joy out to a wider audience. Thank you all. I mean, maybe Rebecca wants to share this. This but- is my thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the postpartum <laughs> obligation message that Lehman has in sheet music is abhorrent. It, there's really no other word for it. Just so people know, my story I had a really traumatic birth experience right before like as we were finishing up the survey for this book I had a really bad third degree tear it took me a year to recover whoa um it it was bad (laughs) and as I'm experiencing this we're reading through Lehman saying in postpartum period you know give your husband oral sex or hand job as he's climbing as he's trying to like because he might be climbing the walls Right. And I'm thinking, 
In what universe does a good, loving, Christ-like man look at his wife who has just pushed out his child from her vagina and said to his wife who is leaking milk, what I need right now is to get my rocks off. And that matters more than whatever you're feeling. What on earth gives anyone the right to look at their spouse who is recovering from one of the most difficult things a body can go through and say, what matters right now is that my testes are feeling a little testy. Like what on earth gives anyone the audacity to think that it is appropriate to tell a woman postpartum that it is her responsibility to think about how her husband is handling not going, going without sex for a few weeks. You know, especially when I was recovering from what can honestly be considered postpartum PTSD. Sure. And I am sitting in my midwife's office and she goes to check my stitches. And it is so traumatic for me that I almost fall off the table in a panic attack and I am shaking Mm -hmm. and it takes two of them to calm me down. And they start having these conversations with me about how you know, you're going to be okay, but you have to take this at your pace. Like just take a long time. Don't work, like work your way into doing sexual things again. Like we were talking about this in such an open way and they were so loving and they were the ones who were giving a message of hope, freedom, and frankly, dignity back Mm. to me after this experience. And then the same week I go back and we start working and I read Kevin Lehman's words which are, he's climbing the wall, so he needs a blowjob. And I'm just wondering, where is Christ in that? How on earth does that look like charging a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church? Because I heard more of that from my midwives and my pelvic floor physiotherapist and from my husband, I will add. And Kevin Lehman's book was actively acting against them. And that is problematic to me when our secular health professionals have a better idea of how it is to be Christ to your wife than our Christian marriage books. That is problematic. And I do want to say my husband was amazing. And I share that story in the book. And a lot of people have told us that that was a really healing story for them to hear as well. But it is not okay to put a man's desire for sex in the present moment to be more important than anything that his wife is going through. Men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that does not include demanding a blowjob when she's postpartum. And I, I think that's actually a problem that we see in a lot of these books is that the way that they phrase a man's need, um, like Emerson Egerton, love and respect. If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Um, we're told over and over again that, that men have this need for sex that women will never understand. And so we're not supposed to deprive our husbands, but the way that they phrase it is like, this need is so great and you can never understand it. So then women who are reading this assume no matter what I am going through, my husband must have it worse. Mm -hmm. And so we are taught that our needs don't matter. And as soon as you feel like your needs don't matter, then sex can no longer be intimate. Mm. Sex can no longer be a deep knowing because a knowing an intimate experience requires that both people show up. Yes. But if her needs don't matter, she's not really there. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is so real. Thank you both for 
for the honesty and thank you, Rebecca. And I'm so sorry for Uh that reality. I mean, you know, we, we were essentially taught that we are, men are uncontrollable, non-emotional, non-mental sex zombies. (laughs) That, That was, that was pretty much the messaging that we received and the solution to that problem uh there was no mention of discipleship of christ of learning about your emotions of learning about the way your hormones and your body work the solution to that problem was to find and marry a righteous fox <laughs> oh no <laughs> And that is pretty much uh, the every man's battle solution, right? Like Mm -hmm. uh, single guys, sorry, it's going to be hard. Married guys, banger all day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and and that's the height of sexual discipleship ethics in the evangelical church until the last five years. Yeah. And that's what's so strange about it is when you actually look at what these messages are saying. It's so clearly not about the transformative nature of Christ, mm. right? And that was really our hope with this book. Because I know our book talks about a lot of heavy stuff. It's like you said, you read the book and you do feel like there's a weight to this. It is hard to care. You know, that is what the book is doing. The book is asking care. Care yes. about you when you were first, you know, getting married and you were so excited about sex and you heard these messages for the first time. Care about you and your husband when you were newlyweds and you started it off on the wrong foot because you were in a culture that didn't teach you any better. You know, care about the women who maybe have it worse than you and your spouse do, who were harmed by this, even if it helped you. Like we're asking people to care because what's happened is we have lost the shepherd's voice. And we've lost it in nice Christianese evangelical culture language mm. because the, the shepherd's voice does not tell people that women are sexual objects to be used in place of the sexual objects you'd prefer to use, Oof. which is, you know, every man's battle tells women be like a merciful method, um, a merciful vial of methadone for him when he's going cold turkey, um, quitting less. You know, like that is not the shepherd's voice. And what we're hoping is with this book, we are able to empower Christians who are reading it to rediscover the shepherd's voice, Mm. to rediscover what it means to listen to Jesus about who you are, how you matter, how you deserve to be treated with honor, with dignity, with respect, both men and women. You know, that you are a person who is beloved and your spouse is a person who is beloved. And what does that mean? mean in marriage and what i'm hoping is that through our work and through this book we're able to throw out all these messages that talk about this power struggle of you have something that i need and i need to get it from you by any means or of that um if we get rid of all this weird power dynamics of sex and we just get back to what the good shepherd says i just hope we can find freedom seriously yeah thank you that is oh man rebecca that was beautiful and eloquent and I feel like in so many ways, I think it's like what, what you two and, and Joanna and, and you're all doing. It's like, I feel like the entire evangelical church is trying to rediscover Christ and we're doing mm-hmm. it in race. <laughs> we're doing it in poverty. We're doing it in all these different areas. And I'm so glad that you are doing it in, in the sex sphere, because honestly, like even just that you've got this chapter on just being kind and I'm just kind of like, yeah, 
Yeah, like we, we were just not, <laughs> I was just not even taught to be kind. Now, I, th- I think, I think uh, if you were to ask my wife, she, she'd say, I am a very, I am a kind lover. But nonetheless, that has come in spite of what I was taught, right? Uh, yeah. You said earlier about like Christian marriage, about the, the fact that these Christian messages are less Christ-like than your, than your midwives. I mean, I've had to do that. I've had to make the same decision with my parenting books. If a book mm-hmm. says biblical parenting, I'm not going to read it because it's going to be full of punitive mm-hmm. garbage. Yep. I'm like, give me some bloody science. Tell me something about how yeah. the brain and the body and, and childhood development, like, yeah, I, this is actually one of the things we want to call the church to. Yes. She, she not to pick on Kevin Lehman too much. Um, but he's such an easy target. Um, and, and I do need to say sheet music did not score as badly on our rubric as some other books. So I know I'm oh. beating up on it a lot. It's just that he has some of the worst sentences that are easy to beat up on, but there were books that were far worse than Kevin Lehman's. But nevertheless, if you look through his books, there are hardly any references. Mm-hmm. And when he does reference a study, it tends to be a study from Red Book Magazine or something like that. Yeah. There are no references to peer-reviewed anything. Yeah. And that's typical of almost every Christian book that we looked at, um, with maybe a few exceptions, but even when they do reference, it might be one or two. We want to set a standard that it's not good enough to just write a book that's your opinion. Um, and let me, can I give you a story about that? Yeah. And this is actually a sad one. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and it did not score badly. It, it was in the neutral category. So we have helpful books, neutral books, and harmful books, according to sex. Um, so it was neutral, wasn't, wasn't really a bad book. But he had this anecdote in the middle of it where he was talking about he and his wife, how early in their marriage, um, sex wasn't that great. And he would ask her at the end, how was that? And if she said it just hurt, they would both be devastated. And so they talked about this and they decided that trying to work for her orgasm was too stressful. And so they would just look at making sex into something that they could give to each other rather than something that they're trying to get. So several things about that. First of all, they were not communicating during intercourse. So he was asking at the end, how was that? And she said, it just hurt. So he had no idea while it was going on that it hurt. Mm. And there there's numerous studies, not ours, because we didn't look at it in this detail, but there's other studies of, of, does of like what I think it was 24,000 heterosexual women, the one I'm thinking of where um, being able to speak up in the middle of intercourse is one of the best predictors of orgasm. So being able to speak up and say what you want, but they're not communicating. So that's a problem. But then the other thing is they said, we stopped aiming for her orgasm. Now, if you're a couple where like she reaches orgasm 70% of the time, you know, that's probably good advice sometimes because that 30% of the time when she just knows she's not going to get there because maybe there's too much in her head, but she's enjoying the closeness. She wants you to have a good time. And she says, seriously, hon, don't worry about me too much. Just go ahead. And if he does worry about her and he does try to make her reach orgasm, she's just annoyed because she wants to get this over. Like, you know what? In that scenario, that's probably really good advice. But we found a 43 point orgasm gap. So, which means that the majority of men orgasm almost always or always, but only 49% of, of men, of women do. Wow. There's a lot of women who are not reaching orgasm. That is terrible advice. If you're not reaching orgasm, 
Right. And so they gave this advice that is based only on their marriage and not based on anything scientific, not based on thinking about anyone who might be approaching it from a different perspective. And reading that from a different perspective would be really harmful to your marriage. And that's where we just want to call, especially pastors who are not trained in this. And the only thing they know about sex is their own wife. Stop writing about sex. Mm. Or if you are going to write about it, please look at the peer reviewed research. Yeah, seriously. Wow. My wife last year read Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Yeah, great book. And it was Mm -hmm. like, there was like gospel freedom in that book for both of us. In terms of like, hey, so here's a whole chapter on bullshit you were taught, excuse my language, in the church. That's not even Mm -hmm. true. Like uh, Mm -hmm. the connection between virginity and your hymen. Like this is not a thing. And Mm -hmm. I've heard it preached from the pulpit. Um, So yeah, get some science into your head. Was there anything Mm -hmm. else that uh, really took you by surprise in in the research and what you guys were doing? I think the biggest one that was a surprise to us was what we found about marriages that aren't having sex. Mm. And we talk about this in the book is, you know, and, and uh, maybe I'll let you take this going. So you've actually talked about this in the past and I haven't, this is my first foray into this. Yeah. I changed my view on this one. So when we, we talk about sexless marriages as being this awful thing and um, you know, if you're in a sexless marriage, we need to get the person who's withholding sex to have sex. And that's generally the approach that we take. And that certainly was for a long time. That was my approach on the blog. Like, look, ladies, you can't just say absolutely no. Now, if you're being abused or if there's like a major marital problem, then, you know, I totally get that. But come on, like if sex isn't that good, like let's figure out how to boost your libido. Let's let's make sex real again because you can't just cut them off. What we found is that very, very few sexless marriages are caused by women simply not wanting to have sex. Right. There are five things that are highly correlated with with sexless marriages. You know, not feeling close during sex, her never reaching orgasm, sexual pain, um, porn use, like, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And in a sexless marriage, like 75% have at least two of those issues. Wow. Whereas in, in um, marriages where they're having sex, the vast majority don't even have one of them. And so sexless marriages do not become sexless just because someone doesn't want to have sex. Sexless marriages are built <laughs> because there's issues. And I think that's one of the things we really found, um, and not just about sexless marriages, but just in terms of libido and frequency at all, is that frequency is it's not like a thermostat where you can just turn up frequency and your marriage will be better. Frequency is a thermometer that tells you what's really going on. And instead of telling couples, you need to have sex every seven to two hours or his testicles will explode. Like it would be much better to ask, why is it that one of you doesn't want sex as much? And let's figure out the answer to that question. Because when someone doesn't want sex, chances are there's a reason. And that's what we found over and over again, is there's a reason. And addressing that reason is far more important than looking at just the frequency. Seriously, which is going to take people in their journey into their story, their history, trauma, maybe this therapy and counseling, maybe that's for either one, like like mm-hmm. all of that stuff, right? Which, which again, was a lot of what was going on in my head as I was reading this. You're, this book was the first time I think I have read a Christian sex book and felt any measure of conviction 
and I and I thought, and I was trying to figure out last night all the different feelings that I was feeling after having read through a bunch of chapters. And I was, and I realized one of the, like, you know, with the anger and everything else, one of the feelings was conviction. I feel called out. Why? What, what is that? Am I, where am I, where am I on the scale? Uh, and, and I realized a large part of it was simply none of the books that I read, as we discussed, called me to any kind of higher standard of love, which is really ironic when, when Christians talk about sex being like the highest expression of love, but actually never had I been invited to consider messages that I'd received ways that I believed about myself, about what the world, about my wife. And so I realized part of it yesterday was just surprised that I feel convicted. I feel like I'm looking at, at age 15 to 19 single Jonathan and age 19 through probably 28 married Jonathan and going, oh man, I'm really glad my wife is still here and that we have oh. rebuilt trust and that we have learned, mutually learned mm -hmm. how to dig deep and offer each other vulnerability and safety and trust. Because uh, I, we weren't asked, I wasn't asked to by the culture. Maybe she was told to, but so little was required of me basically as a man to just mm -hmm. turn up, you know, and yeah. I find that so sad too. And I have a son now, right? Like I'm a mother to a boy and I don't look at his friends who are girls and think, well, they're just going to become better people than him. You know, like I can expect more from them than I can from my son because he's just a boy. He's just going to grow up to a man who can't control himself, who is going to be this, you know, insatiable beast. Like, no, like I have such hope in my, like that my son will grow to be someone who is the example of Christ's love. And my question is just when in Christian teachings does that change? Mm. Like, when does the little baby in front of you become the insatiable, you know, tempted right. boy who can't control himself like at what point do we stop believing in our kids because that's really one of the deeper messages as well like at what point do we stop believing in men like at what point do we start thinking that our male children or you know the young men around us can be expected well you can't really expect much from them because that's just how men are like when did we start believing that you know, when do we stop having faith that God can use someone totally because they're male? When do we stop having faith that Christ can transform someone's sexual sin? When do we stop having faith in our boys? Yeah. Um, and that's what we're really hoping. Every, the Every Man's Battle series literally says men just don't have that Christian view of sex. Yeah. Yeah. Like it literally says that men are incapable of, of seeing things the way that God intended. And we just want to say, you know, in our book, what we hope, and I hope you got this from it, Jonathan, when you read it is this is not an anti-male book. No, because we think men have been sold a bill of goods when it comes to lust. You know, maybe we can talk about that another time, but I mean, the shame that has been heaped on guys for feeling lust when really all they're feeling is sexual attraction, which is not a sin. Like <laughs> that's ridiculous, you know? But the other thing is that over and over and over again, we found that a lot of these negative messages were believed by women 
women had internalized them often before they even got married. So it wasn't their husbands who was cause who were causing them to feel this, but it was often the husbands who helped the women got over it. And it was the husbands who were able to be like Jesus to them and to help them heal and to help them see, no, you are a person and I respect you as an entire person and I love you. And I want to be truly intimate with you in every way. And it was those husbands who were able to transform their sex lives. So this is not an anti-male book. What we are writing is a book that is calling the evangelical church to more um, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's how you experienced it too, because we really did try to say men are not the problem. Yeah, that was, that was exactly, I think what I was chewing over. It was so much more than just, these are problems with sex though. That's all there. But I was, yeah, I was totally like my, and my view of men has been too low and my view of my own sexuality, like all of this stuff, like you you know, it cuts both ways and the, the dehumanizing dehumanizes everybody in the process. Um, I'm so thankful that you've done this work. Uh, I know it was costly and <laughs> painful. And I know that you are getting major pushback. Um, but I'm really thankful that you've gotten into the ring to do this because the church is desperate for this. Absolutely. And I pray that this is just the beginning of the conversation. You know, that's what we said at the end. We're not trying to end the conversation. We just want to begin it. We want to begin by saying, let's develop a healthy sexual ethic that is in line with Jesus. And so let's do more research, but let's no longer accept books that aren't based on research. (laughs) Like, let's do more research. Let's figure this out. Well, we're Christians. We have the Holy Spirit. We should be leading the way. And so let's make sure that we do that. And that we're able to talk about sex in a healthy way so that other couples don't have to go through what I did, you know, when I first got married too. Seriously. Uh, actually, would to that end, would you pray for us here and now? Sure. <laughs> oh, dear Jesus, you are such a picture of love and sacrifice and service. And you created us to follow in your steps. And so I pray that for every person who is listening here, who is currently married, that you will show us how our marriages can reflect your values and that we can strip away everything that is not of you and everything that is ugly and everything that steals humanity or identity or worth from people. And instead that we can see our spouses as beautifully made in your image. And Lord, for the people who are listening, who are not married yet, I pray that you will help them find a real identity and that their sexuality may not be distorted or broken by messages that we hear in the church, by temptations outside of the church, wherever it might be, Um, but that all of us will be able to be fully known by you, (laughs) we'll be able to fully know ourselves and that we will feel accepted and loved by you so that we may be able to love others with that same acceptance and love. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Rebecca and Sheila. Even just as as I was editing this today, I was moved to emotion at how we have settled for such a shallow view of marriage, of sex, of sexuality, of righteousness. There is a lot in here. 
we only really just touched the very edge of the content that's in this book. They cover so much. So I highly, highly recommend it to you. I'll be ordering it. As I said, I can't wait to sit down with a highlighter and just digest it and allow my root system sexuality to continue being reprogrammed and transformed. So hit the show notes and you'll find links to purchase The Great Sex Rescue, as well as go and check out Sheila's blog. She does a ton of great writing. She actually wrote a very lovely endorsement of my devotional, You Are Enough. I'm so thankful for the work that her and others are doing in the church space. Thank you very much for listening, my friends. If you don't know much about me, head over to jonathanpuddle.com. You'll find all kinds of information. Follow me on social media at jonathanpuddle. Much love to you all. Oh, P.S. If you want to listen to the B-side for this episode, where my wife and I and some of our best friends, another husband and wife couple who have been on the podcast before, we sit down and have a very juicy conversation all about this new book and the things we learned in our sex lives and all this stuff. So if you want to hear some behind the scenes on this, you need to go over to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle and become a patron today. $3 will get you in. And the B-side for this will be up within a couple of days. Much grace and peace to you. Bye-bye.